You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, powered by Sportsman's Empire, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 101, Chris Chain Season Report. On this episode of Huntivore, Nick is joined by Chris Chain, a hunter, gardener, and educator from Virginia. Chris took it upon himself to create a personalized digital almanac that sorts information and links for game species, growing seasons, foraging dates, all at your fingertips. Chris lays out how this tool can save you loads of time preparing your hunts or gardens. We also get into talking about bear meat, as Nick has yet to get his hands on some. The guys finish up with street tacos, and what would Chris's final meal request be? All this and more on the next episode of Huntable. Well, hey folks, beautiful afternoon here in Michigan. Actually, I want to say a little balmy here in Michigan. Uh, we've got that little heat bubble that's over us right now. We're up into the 90s with a ton of humidity. So... 
got up early this morning. The boys actually helped me move the wood pile. Uh, we're finding out that um, convenient places for firewood may not always be the best places for firewood because your fire is always someplace else. So that was our morning project, and now we're just drinking water inside. I got the boys over here in the uh, in the basement just chilling out, same as myself. Time to cool down a little bit. But hey, in the meantime, I thought it'd be a great opportunity for us to talk with somebody, and I have with us uh, the owner and creator of Seasons Report. I have with us Chris Chain. Chris, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. How are things in your neck of the woods down in Virginia, correct? Correct. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it is, I think we're on the edge of that heat bubble and it's feeling pretty pleasant. I can't complain. It's maybe hitting 90 today, but the garden's growing good. And uh, we just had friends watch our garden while we were gone and I came back, everything had doubled in size. It was looking healthy. So things are going great here. Excellent. Excellent. So the, the produce are doubling. How about the weed control? Uh, did the weeds also double in uh, in size as well? A little bit, but I think that was probably from uh, neglect on the on the front side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things like you go away for a little while and you come back and you're just like, yep, we're going to have to spend more time weeding the garden. Um, good friend, friend of mine here in Michigan, his that's his big thing is, is gardening. And he said, even if you just spend 10 minutes, you're in between projects, you're waiting for something, you're going to get on a phone call soon, like just spend 10 minutes at a time. Don't worry about doing the whole thing. But I like that idea of like just little weed breaks, not weeding breaks, I should say. I shouldn't say weed breaks. That, that would not be good for the middle of the day. <laughs> no, I agree. And uh, the older I get, the the more it just becomes fun. And it does. As a kid, I remember my parents putting me on weeding the garden. I hated it, but it's weird. As you get older and you get kids yourself, you're like, "Oh, this is actually a really enjoyable process." Exactly. Seeing, yeah, seeing the fruits of your labor, both literally, literally and figuratively, in that point. And so, you know, if you if you give up just a little bit of time, like that week, we did have a vine that seemed to have tried to grow on everything. Luckily, it had just started. Uh, going up and so it hadn't really started choking anything yet but i mean it doesn't take long and something will come in there and, and take advantage of all your hard work yes yes plants are vicious i oh they are you get an open space here in the woods and ground cover comes in stuff that's been you know just waiting to pop waiting for sunlight and i even seen how trees will manipulate how they bend and sway just to get into that it does not take long Granted, I mean, once a tree is established, it's going to be growing up. But you see, like, the twists and, like, leanings of trees, they've not been altered in any way other than themselves just leaning, putting more foliage on whatever side. It's crazy how much that they will bend towards sunlight. Oh, yeah, and this is my uh, first year growing cucumbers, and my wife is excited about doing a lot of pickling. And um, that grows up and grabs on everything it possibly can and it grows in like a crabs in a bucket fashion and like cho if it was competing it would kill each other but it's all the same plant so it just rolls with it but it looks like it's choking every bud with every little uh vine that's trying to climb that's crazy that's crazy so chris you are creator of season report give us Correct. a good run through of of what season report is and how this is going to help the day-to-day -day outdoorsman what is your product and how does it help? 
Yeah, my product is basically the Hunter's Almanac. It is a search engine for everything you can, all the food you can source with your hand. Uh, or locally, you can plan a trip, quickly weed through all the, the season dates and regulations, and really create your own personalized dashboard for the pantry that you're trying to get with your own two hands. And so it doesn't matter if you're a hunter, a forager that just likes to go grab some berries on a hike or some mushrooms, uh, or a gardener, or at this point, coastal state fishermen or fisherwomen. Uh, I, I started with the coastal states first, but slowly going to integrate fishing across the, the country. If you get food with your, with your own two hands, this simplifies all of your search for information for dates, methods, limits, all that stuff. Oh, beautiful. So rather than have to sort through the whole digest for mm -hmm. Michigan or for Montana or for Virginia, mm -hmm. I'm going to be able to then have quick access to my, my fishing uh, dates and requirements here in Michigan. I'll be able to look that up and have that tailored exactly what I'm looking for. Not that I Correct. wouldn't like to chase trout, but I tell you, the bluegill is my prize and that is <laughs> that is what i go for every time so to know what's going on with those that's uh that's really good to know yeah it's uh it varies on uh which state you're looking at but you know some western states are more game management zone eastern states and midwestern is a lot of uh county specific regulations and specifically with hunting it's just in in my own state of virginia i hunt in two counties primarily and each of them have different turkey different deer and different bear dates and so it's a lot when you're packing up the car or packing up the truck for two hours down the road to make sure you're not missing anything and I, it just kind of spurred out of my own uh, attempt at solving my own problem and then as I started building more and more every person I showed it to like how how does something like this not exist already and so it just kind of uh, gave some validation to continue putting effort into it and it's at this point it is uh, it is location-specific hunting regulations across the lower 48. Alaska is my big uh, challenge this summer to code up something that can stand the test of time. And then um, lower 48 for, uh, for gardening and for foraging. And then, like I said, the coastal states for fishing. Wow. Wow. That in itself is being able to break down even the growth zones and depending yep. on you know, I'm at the same latitude and longitude as, or excuse me, latitude as uh, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. But being inside of the Great Lakes, it my growing stuff is like, yeah, mm -hmm. very super specific. We are in zone, I think it's zone five. Here it is. I have to question what zone we are. If I'm <laughs> on seasons report, click, click. Yeah, I know exactly what zone I'm in. But yeah, to have that so specific rather than just read the back of a package that just gave you like, mm -hmm. well, you're in the state, so it must be this. But to get really the nitty gritty to get the specific stuff on what you're going to want to want to get. I mean, frost is no no joke when it comes to gardeners. You want to be able to have your stuff either not in yet, uh, mm -hmm. even though you want to jump the gun, but you want to know those frost dates. Absolutely. And, you know, there's there's variability with weather and everything, but um it's, I just found myself looking at the same information year in, year out, and, and looking at very minute, minute details changing. And um, once you have everything that you're actually going to pursue, it's one click. You, you go to seasonreport.com, your profile launches uh, whenever you log in, and you have your dashboard of all the food you actually care about pursuing. You don't have to 
we've all done the whole website where you you just want to find a piece of information you have to scroll through ads and like stories about family members and all that stuff and you're just like i just want a number and this brings it cuts out all that and there's no ads it just delivers the information to you quickly awesome awesome and so it's at seasonsreport.com uh, what's season the, re season, season report. report excuse yep. me no, no s seasonreport.com um what's uh what's the bottom line what are, what are you asking for oh it's I, I wanted to make this something that is affordable for everybody uh 15 a year that's it and if you have a conservation group that you that you uh, prefer working with uh i've constantly got promotions coming out where i'm working with different conservation groups that will give you a discount code uh to make it cheaper for your pocket usually down to 10 bucks and then I like to split that money with a conservation group because, you know, at the end of the day, I, I am, you know, I am a teacher and I, I feel like the only way that we're actually going to move and make progress on a lot of our conservation challenges is if we can kind of orient a lot of different people toward the same goal of protecting and preserving our wilderness areas. So, yes, this is a tool for you to simplify all of your locally sourced food information, but... What I'm really trying to do is subtly create more conservationists. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yes, hats off. Raise, I mean, granted, it's water right now, ice water, but <laughs> cheers Thank to you. education on the good side of that that we are. We're, we're teachers down deep inside. And so when it comes to sharing information, I, I, I love to find out new things. And I'm the worst thief that there is. I will steal any and every piece of information off of somebody, giving full credit, but then I will then you know, distribute that. And I feel that you're doing the same thing with this. And at the same time, we're all towards the same goal. We want to be able to hunt and fish sustainably. We want to right. be able to keep this project of hunting and fishing and acquiring our own food going. And I find that, yeah, with this, this is a great tool for people to use and for them to get behind. 15 bucks, I mean, that's that's less than what Netflix is now. Yeah, like, you know, yeah you it could, really is. Maybe I should cut Netflix. I would just spend less time, you know, surfing around and maybe do more time weeding in my garden if I had less <laughs> things to watch. Yeah, I, uh, I, like I said, I, I wanted to make something very affordable and that, that was about as low as I could make it to still maintain all of the, overhead for it and uh, I just wanted to continue to grow it at this point we have uh, we have I think about 500,000 individualized food opportunities across the nation in the database but um, hunting alone I have about a, a little over a hundred thousand individual hunting opportunities so when you look at that that's a lot of different things that you can pursue across the country and coupled with the rising cost of everything I, I just think that fifteen dollars to make you more efficient with per, with pursuing and obtaining your own food is going to more than pay for itself in the long run. Absolutely. Absolutely. Spend 15 bucks now. Don't worry about buying coffee. Don't worry about buying, um, you know, a burger at the next fast food joint. Like, use the information you get off your off-seasons report to be able then to better pursue and acquire your own food. Make your own burger. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I have stuff thawing right now for, for that very thing. <laughs> it's it's one of those things, too. Like, I find that there's these, I don't want to say cyclical, but, you know, a couple of years ago, it really was 
when when COVID hit and people panicked, we had stores run dry mm-hmm. of of product. Things go on backlog, and supply just re- like excuse me, yeah, supply dwindle and demand really go high. And so it felt like every other episode, that's what I was talking about as far as this is a great way as being a hunter and angler and even a forager and a grower that, you know, putting stuff away, freezing your stuff, keeping things around, having a bank that you're going to eat from, shortening your own food chain is going to help you get through this pandemic. And now here we are on the outside of that, whatever it's now called, the post-pandemic. We're now finding ourselves in a new supply challenge where you're not going to be able to get everything that you want but now at the same time there's a big push for processed food there's a big push on uh things being done quicker with fillers and quality is slipping and i don't i don't want to be a part of that i want to continue to have the best that i put on my plate is that going to require a lot of effort from me out you know pursuing these animals in the garden is it going to be me having to put forward the effort to be able to store these items and figure out how to can how to freeze how to dehydrate this is all stuff that i got to figure out but in the long run i think we're going to be better off because of it that panic is is out of the way especially when there's a point where you know you can't you can't find what you need anymore not necessarily what you want but now it's become you can't find what you need it's at times it's it's been a little startling over the last few years and i can't tell you how many people i've i've talked to that say that same thing oh my gosh i can i can really use this to to make it through those rough patches when things aren't quite as available and you're right it is it is driving a a lifestyle that demands more effort from you but I think that's all for the best. You're going to be outside more, being more active, understanding where your food's coming from, learning new skills. Uh, to me, there's there's really no downside to getting out and getting your own food in any way that you can. Absolutely. And I will say, Chris, that I am very efficient at replacing calories spent. Um, as one who likes to spend a lot of time in the kitchen, I am really quick to re- like recoup what I just burned. And <laughs> maybe I should spend more time burning more of those calories. Hence, where that's where the wood project came today. The boys were not impressed with that early morning. They were sitting around, and they are already starting the I'm bored talk. And it's like, guys, we're only you – know, we're not even in July yet, and you're talking about bored? That was a word that I never – told my father that I was bored because I knew what was coming on the backside of it. And yeah, bored meant, uh, oh, I got a project for you. Yes. So I actually grabbed a hold of that today. And yeah, despite them, uh, you know, the the whining and the belly aching, fellas, we're going out, we're going to move this wood pile. I need it moved anyway. And this is just a great way for you guys to just burn some of this excess energy and get you guys motivated. Find a way to be not bored. And Absolutely. They did well. They responded well. At first, it was like, why do we have to do this? And I equated it over to, well, you, you know, we just had s'mores the other night. I'm like, you enjoyed having s'mores, right? Yes, we we liked having the s'mores. Good. What do you need to roast marshmallows on? They're like, okay, we need the fire. Right. And that's where the wood comes into play. That you help me with the wood, that makes s'mores more available. So anyway, that was the line that I sold them 
they bought it. They bought it. And once they got into it, then they were trying to pick who could pick up the biggest log, who could pick up the most <laughs> logs. Then it became a game. It became a challenge. And then they, oh, yeah. they, they ended up having fun with it. No, that's the, that is the sign of a good teacher, trying to figure out the central motivation at the end and drive toward it. <laughs> Absolutely. Sometimes my motivation is yelling and screaming, and others it is just, hey, we got to do this because you like s'mores. You like a sweet treat at the end. So I think yeah. I have to pay up tonight. I should probably do that. We should probably have s'mores again. We'll do two nights of s'mores. It sounds like a s'mores night. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am so excited to hear about Season Report. I know when you had first contacted me, um, I was like, a modern almanac. Is this something that I – is this something that ties in with food? Is this something that – that I can get to work with. And, you know, I had to think about it a little bit. And then the more that we engaged, the more that we went back and forth, I could really see not only where your product was, but at a place where you were at, at Chris. So yeah, don't take that as like uh, man, I was just pushing this guy off. I wanted to see if he was just some sort of salesman, but no, Chris, I loved just our integration or I mean, our interactions going back and forth. And I see that, you know, your product too is, it really does make a, one-stop shop for people to go ahead and find everything that they need for whatever they're chasing. What, you know, you just put to have to have your year in front of you so I can start seeing dates even in February when it's just this low time, I can start thinking ahead and making my own schedule up for the year when it comes to finding your own food, growing your own stuff. Absolutely. And uh, no, no offense taken there. I, I have encountered, uh, something I didn't quite anticipate. I thought you know, instantly, oh my gosh, you can look across the whole country and, and, and navigate all the different hunting regulations in a click. Of course people want to use that. And then I just I found, oh, it, I have to educate people as to what this is. And so no offense taken, it's just it's a reality of I'm doing something in a new way and it takes people a little bit of attention, even, even 30 seconds, and then they get it. But it's been an interesting, probably a harder challenge to get the word out than it has been to build it. Uh, trying to figure out how to demand that attention just long enough for somebody to hear, oh, oh, well, I can really shape a lot of my fun time around this app. Yes, yes. And to hear that you're not after my wallet. That's usually what it is. I'll get a, you get a DM like, hey, we should collaborate because, you know, I, I have this, like, wonderful, like, clothing line. And I'm like, are you are you serious? I can't like, tell you the number of knife makers, uh, Damascus steel <laughs> knife makers yes. I've had reach out to me. <laughs> what I know about Damascus, Damascus steel is that there is not enough of it made yet for all of these companies to exist. That is what I know. Oh, yeah. Uh, folding steel is a fancy technique, and it's, uh, as a chemist, something I am very interested in. But, yes, the number of companies out there, wow, this is the scale of this has got to be off. I think they're just really good at the like either the chemical etching to make it look like Damascus. I think that's what they're, they're oh, you really don't good at. I, I've received so many of them, I stopped even looking at them. Uh, and so I never even thought about just chemically etching. But you don't even think they, they do the full folding process. Either that or it's done very, I don't want to say carelessly, but it's been done very, they've automated probably a lot of it as far Got as it. being able to fold it in. But I really do think that there's a lot of like, yeah, chemical etching going on the side. They've either done like a couple dips and they put a cool design on the side. And I mean... 
it is what it is. I'm not I'm not a knife maker. I'm a knife user. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple things I know about a knife. And if it's if it's a harder steel, it's gonna be harder to sharpen, but it's gonna hold it longer. You get a softer steel, it's easier to sharpen, and finding the balance of what you like is gonna be where it's at. As far as like how many times steel is folded. I just don't know that, but I do know that, yeah, if you snap a knife, well, just get another one, and all knives eventually snap. <laughs> At least that's in my uh, my wheelhouse as a, as a uh, meat cutter. You know, I don't want to say that all knife makers are bad because uh, it's only the unsolicited ones that, that get overwhelming, but there are a few local uh, knife makers here that I've really enjoyed talking to. Uh, one is Red Walker Forge. They, they gave me a few, not Damascus steel knives, but they are rot on top and slowly phase into like a really good uh good handled kitchen knife uh and then there's another one for uh for cleaning an animal and i haven't been able to put that one to use yet but i am looking forward to to using i use the one in the kitchen all the time uh but getting one in there and cleaning an animal would be pretty cool it's it's thick it's it's hardy there's a nice uh curl to prevent you from like slipping onto the blade it's a good design Nice, nice. Um, pointy, or is it more of a bull nose? I was just going to ask in, like, what's your desired shape in the kitchen for a for a cooking knife? And it sounds like you have one. This is the one that you're using. Mm-hmm. Wide at the top, narrows all the way down um, to your sharp edge. As far yeah. as, is there a point, or is it, is it rounded? I shouldn't say rounded, but is it more of a, a shallow as, a, as opposed to something super pointy? Yeah, it's a it's a full chef's knife, so it's the big long one, and it's got a point on it. Um, and you know, I, I go back and forth between that and the Wustoff knives that we we have in the kitchen too. And you know, I like different ones for different reasons. But I gotta say, I like how it's a little wider. And I never really paid attention to knife preference until I started, uh, quite honestly, this business and started talking to to different knife makers. But I didn't realize the benefits of a wider or especially like a rough top when you're chopping a lot of vegetables because we've all done the you know the chopping where they start sticking adhering to the blade and then they get caught up and then you have this like falling mess every three strokes uh the wider and rough it just it just puts them off to the side instantly which i i've never used a knife before like that and so there are some benefits with different design yeah i got one right here that i'm showing granted the the listening audience can't see that, but I think this is what you're talking about here is this is, well, this is my cleaver that yeah. I use. I don't have a handle on it yet. I need some new scales, but if I can show that on there, like you're talking about yeah. that rough edge right there where you've been able to, you put the blade down and then you come with a baton or basically like a, a large rolling pin or a piece of wood. You don't necessarily go steel on steel, but anyway, dropping that on there and just popping between joints um, or even when it comes to, uh, like you're saying, vegetables, they do. You hit that, and that the angle here coming off the blade and getting wide at the top, it just kicks them off rather than right. sliding up top and having a big mess. Yeah, your tomatoes just flop off perfectly. Absolutely. Now i got to make sure it stays here. Yeah, don't drop that. I just, uh... Oh, I just <laughs> dropped another one. Oh, I don't want to have to call 911. <laughs> We're just going to leave that over there. We'll put the display back here a little while. <laughs> Well, good deal. Oh, I wanted to move on, too. You were also uh, giving me some hard time, too, about my freezer going down, or at least you were engaging with me. I, tell I don't you. know if it's hard time as much as uh, <laughs> uh, shared horror. 
<laughs> yes. So uh, if you follow along on the Instagram, you saw that my my freezer ended up going. I don't say my freezer didn't go go down. My my family, my non-observant family, missed the door propping open uh, about an inch and a half. And so wife went in to go get burger. Uh, got some burger. Kids are going crazy. She sets it down on the counter. She, you know, gave it the push to hopefully get it to go. I think it bounced back like it closed and then bounced back. But at the same time, boys were running through that way, and they never saw it. They're young. They're not going to see that anyway. But I come back from the weekend um, away up with the guys, and I saw that it was cracked a little bit. And I was like, oh, no, this is not good. I open it up, and the whole thing is just full of ice. It's just absolutely everything. The ice is formed on all of the racks. Uh, the door was all thawed. It was all cold, but uh. it was all thawed. And I was just like, oh, oh, no. I could hear the condenser running. And so I'm like, you know what? We haven't lost the freezer. We just had careless use of the door. So what I ended up doing is pulling everything out. And I have... I have a couple different freezers that I keep available. Um, I like to store water in milk jugs, and that's a great way to be able to uh, pull those out, throw those in a cooler quickly. I like a big block of ice rather oh, than that's a, good a idea. bag of ice. Yeah. Huh. We go through a lot of the distilled water for the for our coffee maker, so we end up with this jug anyway. So I just fill it with tap and then throw it in. Wow. A full freezer is a happy freezer. And so if I don't have a lot in a particular freezer, I start throwing those jugs in. So I pulled out about six jugs out of the chest freezer that I have, and then I filled that with the meat that I pulled out of the upright freezer. Um, I've got my uh, freezer that attaches to my beer fridge, which is down in the shop. So I just shoved everything back into there. <laughs> so I had places for things to go. That I had one cool. I had to use one cooler as well. So a couple of those frozen jugs went in there, and then a lot of frozen meat. But I didn't panic, and I just kind of had a plan going for me. And I think that was my saving grace: is rather than panic and then just you know not it just give up on the whole thing and start chiseling out, but to say like this, this meat is still frozen. It just needs a place to visit until I defrost all this then we can get everything back. Um, so luckily I can say that the upright is back up and working. Whew. It was also a good time to really like do some housekeeping because I pull those yeah. out and you're like, wow, I've got a couple different kinds of animals in this bucket that I haven't seen in a while. So it's like these freezer treasures had come up. So now I'm like, oh, that's right. I do have a pheasant here that needs to be used. <laughs> Let's get him in a spot so I know where he's at. And there was a couple things that had some freezer burn. So yeah. About ten percent of all of it had to had to get pitched. It was one of those things like, well, that was that was careless on my part, but luckily it most of it was saved. So anyway, yeah, that was a, my that was my freezer troubles. I'm glad to hear you made it through because that was a horror of a picture that you put up of just the the empty racks. <laughs> but um, I'm, as I've started to get more species in my uh, freezer. It, it just starts to feel like I'm back in the lab again, where you're storing different uh, DNA samples from different <laughs> different species doing analyses. Yes, and like in a lab, labeling is everything. That's the only thing <laughs> you got. You yeah. know, even if it has a code, because there's sometimes too where you write on there uh, venison 2022, 
uh, buck, and you write out the name of it. After a while, you look at the stack of like what you have to write on. You're like, holy smokes, I know I'm only writing three things, but I am getting sick of writing the word venison. So having a simple system that you can work with as far as making it into anacronyms or just one le- one letter um, system, but at the same time share that system or put that system someplace so that others know what you're talking about. You know, I just realized I should probably put my system up uh, on social media. I, I always do year, month, day. That's what we did in the lab. And yep. year, month, day, dot, uh, single letter abbreviation for whatever species it is. Uh, I don't have so many different uh, species in there where that'll be a problem. But if maybe if I was out west and I had mule and whitetail, that would be a problem. But then it would just be an M and a W. But um, so year, month, day, dot, species dot whatever the cut is and that served me well because you always have that flap on the excess of your uh freeze-dried meat or not freeze-dried uh vacuum sealed meat. yes and so i just put it there where it's easily dangle dangling up free to read and it works out well beautiful my code that i won't put up um <laughs> if i here in michigan it gets cold and i will hit i'll find a deer i don't hit the deer but i find deer that have been hit and man I love a good salvage tag. That really does kind of take that little bit of extra freezer space that I have and fill it up if I can take oh, two man. quarters or some backstrap off off a, a whacked deer. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to put roadkill on on any of my stuff. <laughs> Not an I, I, have a, I have a podcast where we talk about cooking, and I got to have things that I experiment and try because there's going to be some stuff that doesn't work. Certainly. So I have gone with like either calling it Sal if it's a buck, or Sally, if it's a doe, and that's how it gets written in. So it's Sal uh, top round, or it's uh, Sally uh, bottom round, however the, the cut is. And that just kind of, you know, when the wife does go and get something, she'll say, like, hey, do I come grab some of the Sal stuff or no? And then, and then I can tell her, like, yes, we're experimenting. Or I can say, no, no, let's <laughs> use let's use the stuff that we really mean to get. So at least I've got something that uh, I have a chance to play with. So you have your own, like, uh, FBI uh, Jack and Jane Doe system going on. Exactly, (laughs) yes. It's not terrifying at all. (laughs) When in the field, accuracy and precision count. That's why we switch our slug guns to rifle barrels, tune our arrows, and use a fish finder on the water. But why should our drive for control end there? The Tappacue line of meat probes gives an instantaneous look at the temperatures of our prized meals, both internal and the cooking chamber. Tappacue uses sturdy hardware made and assembled here in the U.S., along with their user-friendly, sophisticated software that connects to your smart device. Whether it's a traditional corded probe or the new cordless air probes that give you a wealth of freedom where wires would just get in the way. Adding a Tappacue meat probe can significantly help in getting to that medium rare on venison or waterfowl, ensuring your upland bird stays moist, or even charting your long cooks on a smoker. Visit tappacue.com or find the link in the show notes and use the code HUNT10, all uppercase, at checkout to save 10%. Adding a probe to your kit can make you one tap away from your queue. All right. Well, Chris, let's take a quick transition. Um, and we're getting into, now we're going to get into some specifics. Um, 
you had talked again. I, I had posed out a question on social media, and I said, "What are, what is something I should be? What is something I should be trying? What is something I should be uh, working on understanding so that I could share with with the masses?" Uh, I had a couple people say uh, raccoon and woodchuck, so it's like, oh, geez, we're going after the varmints now. But <laughs> you wanted me to break down bear, and that is that is something I have yet to experience, both hunting a bear or uh, using bear meat. I am totally open to the idea. It's just I haven't been given uh, or taken that opportunity yet. You, sir, have had a chance to chase some bear and eat some bear. Tell me a little bit about your experience with that. Yeah, in Virginia, it's gotten to the point now. Um, I didn't see any bear in the woods about eight to ten years ago. And then in the last five years, I'm seeing upwards of ten every year. And uh, I think I saw about 15 last year. And based on a million different uh, scenarios, they were all unique and individual. So it wasn't like I was seeing the same one. Uh, yeah, it's at first it was kind of unsettling, always running into black bear, but then you get, you run into them so many times out here that, oh, you kind of understand how they, they react. And I was with a buddy, we got bluff charged and that was, that was pretty scary. But, um, other than that, as soon as they smell or hear you, they're going. And, um, aside from the one that I got during bow season, he was just a little too curious and coming straight up my scent line. And I was actually trying to scare him off. Uh, for to preserve that that opening evening of deer season and he got to 10 yards and would not would not shake it and he was kind of coming straight at my tree slowly but surely and so I took that shot and uh, I have been going back a few years I read Teddy Roosevelt talk about uh, all of his his hunts and one of the things that stuck in my mind was how he said that bear meat was a high class meat versus venison being a pauper meat back in his day and it was because of the fat content and so I always buy a bear tag with that in mind and it has been such an, a unique food journey uh, eating through that it's it's yes it is the first question I always get is it greasy it's not greasy it's just got fat in it compared to no fat in venison and um, it you know it makes for some interesting it just it I've gotten used to t uh, to cooking only venison for a long time uh, something unique here or there, but I just have to kind of relearn, oh, I pretend I'm cooking beef or pork here. And it's, it, it's great in sausage. I'm actually going to do a roast this weekend for the first time. So there's a whole lot of, uh, experimenting going on in our household. Excellent. Is it, yeah, not the greasy part, the gre greasy part. Um, is it the fat is capped on top of the meat? and the meat is relatively lean, or are we looking at where it's marbled in between the grains? I've Because I've seen pictures of, of bear, and it does look very lean. Is the fat located mainly on the outside, or is it like in, in between all the, the muscle grain? Uh, so it is definitely outside of muscle a good bit. Uh, it does look really fresh and red and, and lean, just like a venison. But it's, there's definitely some, um, some intramuscular fat that comes out when you cook it. Gotcha. And this is, these are fall bears that you're taking, so I could see that where they've spent 
a good part of their spring and summer just mowing down on the sides of those uh, Appalachian Hills there in Virginia, just sucking down everything that they can. So that fat is going to eventually work into that, whereas the ungulates, yeah, the deer, I mean, they eat and then their fat stays on the outside. Rarely does it go in between. So that's really yeah. neat to see that, yeah, the like you get to a, like a bear haunch or uh, something like a top round or something or a rump where you're going to start to get some marbling on that. I didn't experience marbling, but there was definitely when you're cooking a steak of it, it um, you do not need to put as much oil in the pan because it's, it's got its own fat there. And um, my bear was first day of bow season. So we're talking still very early October. And he hadn't really started uh, putting on fat yet. So he had a little bit, but he wasn't this ready for December, January type bear that is full of fat. I think I was catching him just at the uh, the upslope. Gotcha. So he's a little bit of a leaner bear, but at the same time already starting to put on that outer coat of of flavor so to and speak. you could you could tell he was uh he was gonna bulk up considerably because he was a big bodied bear but uh he just was in the i mean he was very healthy he just hadn't started putting it on yet mm-hmm. um like with when with any wild game someone outside of the circle of eating wild is going to say that animals not raised on corn, soybean, things that, that domesticated animals are used to, things are gamey. Mm-hmm. When it comes to a bear, how prevalent are the natural wild flavors coming out in this bear? Is it is it a unique flavor, or is it similar to venison with hints of stuff that it's not? I guess what I'm it, saying, it, it does it taste wild or is it one of those things like it's as long as you prepare it like and know that this is something that's not off the shelf, a lot of people could could enjoy this. So I think that gets to where a lot of people say gamey and they don't really know, you know, what they're what they're talking about or they don't know what they're trying to describe. It's just different. Uh, a lot of people use that word. And yes, it has a distinct flavor, um, but I found, and my wife and I talk about this a lot, people that usually say, oh, you can't eat that, it's gamey or something. It really comes from just bad preparation or bad uh, management in the field. And they, they did a few too many pictures with it and it's just starting to turn a little bit. I have, I, I prefer the term earthy. There, there's a kind of a natural earthy flavor of venison that I prefer. Uh, this has certainly a unique flavor, uh, bear does, but... I've never experienced, or I, uh, not with fortunately anything that I've harvested. I've never had that negative gamey connotation that that people describe. Um, all that being said, you know the bear, it's it's somewhere between like. A, have you ever had a wild boar? I have not had wild pork yet. So I don't like domestic pork, but I love wild boar, and I'd say the bear is somewhere between the spectrum of venison and wild boar. Okay. Where there's this, um, it's unique. It's not foreign. Uh, it it is familiar. It's like you uh, you've had it before, but you can't quite put your finger on it. I like that familiar, and yeah, not foreign, but just familiar. I like that. Yeah. Easiest cut to work with off a bear, one that uh, some that somebody as a novice would say save that cut 
because I can figure out how to cut that one. You know, I don't think I'm qualified to answer that quite honestly, because I'm a novice. <laughs> I, I've only had the one and um, I'd say maybe sausage. That was the first time I ever made sausage and it was a good application for a lot of that meat. And I ended up making a lot because I knew I wanted to to share a lot of it as much mm-hmm. as I could. And I figured sausage was the best way. And we we put a lot, <laughs> we created a lot of sausage and uh, it's good. I never get tired of it, nice. but it's a, it's the perfect thing to, hey, you're going to be at the cookout. I'll bring you two links and let you try it kind of thing. Good deal. So you guys went with a raw sausage then, not a cooked summer sausage at this point. Correct. We, we took a little bit of uh, pork fat uh, and put it in there. And we made it in like a andouille sausage. So oh, there's there a lot go. of Cajun spice. We're both from Louisiana, and um, and there's there's a whole lot of uh, homage back to that flavor of that Creole cooking. Ooh, yeah. I made boudin balls oh. of my venison. Nice to go with the alliteration bear boudin mm-hmm. balls. I think that's that's something. If you've got it hanging around, we might have to get you introduced in some boudin. I get boudin every single time we go visit family. Uh, and you you have to get it from a gas station or somebody that makes it. Uh, in the store, it's the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that would be really good. I do like a good boudin. Yeah. I Off the Venny one, because um, I was trying to figure out a way how to use venison liver. Uh, hmm. Much easier. I shouldn't say much easier, but use it more than just liver and onions. That's Ooh. a thing here in, in Michigan. It's like, hey, you get a liver, you slice it up, you throw it with onions, and it's it's a tired dish. It's a traditional dish, but it's it's tired, and not a lot of people eat it um, regularly. So to have it like in a little like deep fried boudin ball was just like, oh man, I had so many people that were like on board with it. I did like a burger sauce, so it was your like mustard ketchup. Um, I think there was some. Uh, barbecue sauce in it. I think I threw a little bit of heat in there as far as like a Frank's Red Hot, but basically just a, a burger sauce. And then people were dipping into that. And I tell you, I went, I went there with my deep fryer and I had a bunch of them all prepped. So they were crispy and I left with just the deep fryer. I didn't bring nice. anything home uh, from that party. So it was like, yep, this is a winner. So I'd say making some bear boudin might be a, a way to go. I might have to. Yeah, that sounds great. Most challenging cut or part of the bear that you've experienced so far i mean it sounds like you have some of it still left in your freezer oh yeah which piece is really making you scratch your head uh you know roasts are easy um you know just because their their approach um i don't know if there i've encountered anything that i actually sat back and said i i didn't really enjoy that i think prior to that was the butchering process I didn't, you know, you hear, if you've talked to anybody who's got a bear, it looks a little different when you get it skinned. And that, that was pretty true. Like that, that one kind of took me a second to, I'm cutting up a bear. <laughs> this is not a person because their forearm is so yes. similar. Musculature, the way the thumb is offset a little bit. I mean, it, it looks, it looks startling like, like a, a human cadaver. Laying there. <laughs> yeah. So that was probably the most challenging part where. Uh, a neighbor walked up as I got to that part, and they were a little off, but <laughs> understandably so. Like, I promise, I'm not a psycho now. <laughs> hey, you step on my lawn, you know, give him the eye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> so good. It's been, you've been working with the bear. Nothing has that and turned you away from it other than the butchering process. You're like, man, you, you just have to prepare yourself for that challenge. 
Yeah, it's not uh, bad. You just got to understand what you're going to see. Yep. But uh, I, I think to answer your original question, I think everybody would like it. Every, I have not had a single person taste it and dislike it at all. And it's not even the, hmm, yeah, that was good. No, like everybody that tried it. So we had a, we made a gumbo with it one night and uh, we had our neighbors over. And my neighbor, who I've learned a tremendous amount about cooking from, he had some family in. And so he came over, tried it, and he said, hey, can I go get my brother-in-law? Because he's got to try this. And I was like, absolutely, bring one over. And uh, for for a skilled chef like that to respond, that I felt that, uh, A, the meat was really good and everybody could like it, but that I had done it a good service. Yes, excellent work, excellent work. When you get a trained chef to, to think about that, and I think that's that's true. Like I know I've talked to a couple of chefs too where it it's hard to mix your passion and make it a job that after a while you do feel like a little piece of you dies because what you absolutely love about what you're doing is also one of those things that it's it's day-to-day, it's frustrating, and sometimes you're just looking for the end of the day to get there. But to have them come and experience like that, again, that joy of like their mouth is awakened by the flavors that you've made from it, and I think from that, that chef was like, oh, my goodness, like this is what food is all about at that point. Oh, yeah. It really excited him, something new that he hasn't experienced. You know, It's coming out of the wild. It's not coming off of some back of the truck where right. he's, uh, he's he expects what it's going to be. This was totally outside of his realm. Well, the cool thing, I'm looking forward to duck season this year because he is much more familiar with uh, when he was in the kitchen, he was doing a lot of duck preparations. And so he can do super fancy duck a million different ways. And uh, he always received somewhat broken down ducks. I mean, they were still, he had to break them down. But when I got a duck last year, I, I asked him, hey, I, I'd like to learn how you break it down so I get the absolute most out of this animal. And uh, he said, absolutely. So I had it all plucked and uh, called him over and we had to do it outside because uh, neither of the wives were really jazzed on all the feathers in the kitchen and stuff like that. So I tell you um, plumage off waterfowl, man, it gets yeah. everywhere. Oh yeah. <laughs> and so it was really cool because we were both learning something. He had never been that close to the kill of the duck. He'd always had a fully plucked duck uh, with different, I think the head had always been removed uh, and the innards had already been removed. And so I just brought a, plucked duck and said okay well let's let's start and so it was really cool to hear him he, you know think through all the things that he was learning and then once it shifted from I got the guts out and, and cleaned it to a state that he would be more comfortable with then he took over and it was really cool to, to get as much information out of that learning process as possible and so uh, this coming season I look I have uh, many more duck days on the calendar to, to try to maximize learning from him awesome awesome i know duck is one of those things i've got buddies who are all in they actually don't spend a ton of time in the deer woods they spend them at the the duck ponds and trying to get their limit each time uh either on mallards or woodies or or whatever Mm -hmm. and that's a really cool story where you're talking about the meeting of the two worlds where you know you're taking the animal but you're not sure exactly like what i can do with it and then you're taking somebody who works with duck on a daily basis and get super close to that experience of taking it out of the sky that's a that's a neat world to bring together and he and what was fascinating is he said he he'd been uh so much more used to farm-raised duck so it was larger and so this one, he said, oh, it's, this is not a small duck. 
it was a nice big duck, but it was just inherently different. It wasn't getting, uh, it was having to compete for its food. And so it was just a smaller animal. And so he led me through all the ways that he got the meat off there and preserved the legs. And at the end, it was one of the cleanest uh, pile of bones left over for making the perfect stock. Awesome. Awesome. Well, hey, we've gotten down to the crescendo of our show here, Chris. We are at the two-dish breakdown. Okay, this is it. Steaks cooked medium rare. Can I get my steak cooked? That's what? No question. You hungry? Hey, Ma! Can we get some meat loud? We're the end of the you heard about this. Come on, get it! Yay! Here at the two-dish breakdown, I'm going to give you a scenario of what you're going to make in the kitchen or on the bar or at the barbecue or wherever you're at. And not only do I tell you, want you to tell me what you're going to make, but I want you to really give us the nitty gritties, give us the detail of how you're going to prepare that and end up serving that to our selected audience. All right. You think you're, you think you're ready for this? Cause I kind of, oh. I gave you this uh, challenge, but I didn't give you any direction at all. You're going in blind. I'm excited. Well, I was watching a little Master Chef last night, so let's see if I can uh, do a minute <laughs> version of what they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is like chopped Master Chef and Iron Chef all put together all right. right here. So, <laughs> first of our of our two dish breakdown is we want a street taco. Okay. I want you to lay out how you are going to put together a wild game street taco. I'm going to keep it open to wild game. You get to choose any species that you'd like, uh, but I want you. But I really want to know how you're going to approach the meat, and then approach the construction of the taco. All right, sounds great. Uh, so obviously, start with ground, and I, I'll I'll tell you the venison process that I prefer, and then obviously a a wild boar or a bear or something like that would be similar, just with adding less fat to it, right? because it's going to already be ground in. But um, for my venison tacos, I've actually, I've been going to a, a taco truck right around the corner for years now because it's absolute perfection. And, uh, you know, off air, I've, I've talked to them a lot about it and we've cooked together once or twice, uh, never on their stuff, I'm not breaking any rules or anything like that. Oh, good but, deal, good deal. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> uh, but I've really tried to learn how they perfect that flavor, just that, that, that's savory meat. And so fine diced onions that are barely caramelized is a must. Fresh mm -hmm. cilantro, some fresh lime. And then for that meat, I like to grind it. And I don't really like to cut my venison with, with beef or, or fat that much. I'd prefer to add the fat in when I cook. And so um, what I like to do that I've, I've found good success with is just a nice healthy bit of butter. At, that you cook the ground venison in, get it nice and brown. Uh, maybe add a little bit of deer stock just to to get, provide some uh, moisture and get it to where it's it's not just browned. I like it to where it starts to get a little bit past brown. Like, are you starting to cook it too much? At least for yeah. a taco. And I find the the key ingredient in a taco. Obviously, the meat has to be perfect, but it has to be corn tortillas. Uh, yep. Corn tortillas that are on the that are cooked on the skillet with just a little bit of veggie oil or canola oil, so you can get the the char, but they're still floppy. So two of those meat, 
onions, cilantro, and then squirt of lime on top. That is the perfect street taco, in my opinion. Awesome. Awesome. That is, yes. There are so many things that I just, I loved what you said out of that. Uh, first one is, yes, the corn tortilla. That is that is my end-all, be-all. I love the corn tortilla. The rest of my family are all into the uh, flour, so I have a chance to use them and to go side-by-side. Like, if I could... Yeah, if I had to die with one tortilla, it'd have to be the yeah. corn corn tortilla. We got into I have some flour. I have some flour tortilla people in my family too, and we come <laughs> we come to that civil war every time we do. Uh, we love tacos. them because we have to. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, we started making ours. Um, granted, we still get them from the store because it's super easy. But if we've got the time, um, it's a fun project because you make the mesa. And we got one of the little presses, and nothing's better than to hand over a ball of mesa inside of two two pieces of plastic. We cut up a Ziploc bag, so you have one on the top, one on the bottom. Hand that over to a five-year-old and just have them, you know, slam that sucker closed. It is one way to get them involved. And then you pull it and then throw it on your skillet. Um, I As my Father's Day gift, I just got uh, the camping version of a Blackstone. I got one of the 22-inches. 22 inches and that has actually lived on my back porch um where all my other grills and stuff are at and that sucker when it comes to making up um tortillas it's so nice because you have the surface area so the little guy can just sit there and punch out tacos and i'm just flinging them out there flipping and pulling them off so that thing works out super good i'm surprised you went with the ground on that oh, you know, really? it's it's another thing where you have the ground versus the stewed meat or the the barbacoa i lean towards the shredded or the barbacoa but that's I've done just, barbacoa and that's phenomenal yeah. yeah so it's one of those things that toss up i'm never going to turn down a, a taco but yeah I was, I was surprised to hear you go with the ground but i like I, adding in the moisture too where you're adding in the butter and then going back in with a little stock too yeah i i like the ground just because it's got more surface area to hold all that flavor uh, I find that personally, if I, I try to go for the, I mean, barbecue is one thing and, and the shred on there is nice and juicy and it's great, but I've never really had the best luck taking a, a hunk of meat and thinly cutting it for a taco. Not mm-hmm. that it wasn't cooked right. I just, I, something gets lost whenever you're having to bite into the taco and bite yes. the meat and pull. And I just, I like it to be a simple bite. Yep. Asada is tough. You got to, I guess, as far as like cutting it thinly sliced. Yeah. Sometimes you get, you get a cut of meat that has a little more toothiness. Yeah. And you end up having to like shred it. Although now that I'm thinking about it, maybe some of these cuts of bear with just a little bit more of the intramuscular fat might serve for a better one. Cause I think what makes a carne asada so good is because it's basically a brisket with a lot of fat in between. And so you're, you're pulling off of something that's ready to fall apart. I wonder if the bear might lend itself for that. You gave me a new project. There you go. Because you're, you're getting your bear up to, uh, hopefully you're getting it up to 160, 165, correct? No, you a 110 guy. 110 guy. No, no, no. It's <laughs> like, oh, well, <laughs> hey, folks, say goodbye to Chris. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I definitely uh, have a meat thermometer when I'm cooking with uh, bear or pork. Yep. Actually, I did read FDA lowered the pork, at least domestic pork. They've lowered that down to 140, 145 hmm. because they've uh, they've gotten, they have enough control over um, the meat coming from growers to the facility 
that they can inspect and see what yeah, that that meat is pure at that point. They don't have the parasites, so they've been able to drop that a little bit. But at the same time, anything that's not in those controlled facilities, yes, 160, 165. I would just stick with 160, 165. <laughs> it just takes one hiccup, and then you got a ruined few weeks. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, that was a good that was a good softball, man. You smacked that out of the park. Great with a street taco. This is your second dish. This one's a little bit more personal. It's one that I really do like because when you are living uh, the lifestyle that we have, it's very polarizing. And when you're in the market of basically being someone who presents themselves as a hunter, as an angler, as someone who acquires their own food through the killing process of another, you get a lot of targets on your back. And right now, Chris, the masses have decided that it's your turn. The target is on your back, and you are going to be earning your last meal because you're done for. They're going to end up taking your life here next. (laughs) (laughs) So as your last meal on death row, your request, what is going to be your dining uh, meal of choice? Well, I think the preamble to that would be uh, exactly what I'm trying to achieve with Season Report is to lower everybody's guard and get everybody coming together at the same dinner table. And so that's why I've consciously put hunting, fishing, foraging, and gardening all together. Because I think those a lot of those divisions are just because you haven't spoken to somebody on the other side. Uh, so that would be my preamble to that. But um, Absolutely. Just to interject real quick, I love that idea because I can't, there's so much arguing going on in so many facets of the world, especially, say, through an online venue. You are disconnected from a person. Now, mm-hmm. I realize I am talking to you, but I'm literally sitting states away from you. Nothing is more, I want to say, that brings people together, but at the same time really has you question your own motives, thoughts, belief, beliefs than sitting at a table across from somebody not necessarily having a debate but talking about issues face to face close i think that really i think that's something that needs to happen more as you put this together i really applaud that that's that's the angle that you're going for i appreciate that yeah a lot of uh, a lot of thought and consideration has gone into that and it really everything you just mentioned is the motivation there because as you said, across culture, history, religion, everything. I mean, what do people do when they come together? They really come together, they break bread, they talk over a meal. And I think if we can reframe our approach to the local ecosystem, quite honestly, uh, around that dinner table of we're all in this together, we're all getting food from the, the same source, uh, whether it's a supply chain deliverable or something you personally sourced, I just think... Uh, Starting there leads to much more fruitful conversations about what's really important, like preserving wilderness areas and stuff like that. Um, But to answer your question, uh, assuming I have a mob and I'm, I got a last meal there. I think I'd probably, I mean, a street taco might be the first choice, but uh, if I couldn't do that, it might be a venison Wellington at this point. That might be my, my favorite meal. Uh, I typically do that for holidays. I've had the neighbors over for Thanksgiving and had that and family in for Christmas. And it's a, it's a meal that demands three or four hours, but 
all that effort is rewarded with a very unique presentation and flavor. Absolutely. Break us down your Wellington. I mean, I've done it. I've, I've, I've made a Wellington. I love the Wellington, but I want you to break yours down yeah. for me. What, what starts the construction? Uh, very first is obviously you got to get all the ingredients, which if you, you can't, this is one of those you can't get halfway through and realize you got to rush to the store because everything's so time <laughs> sensitive. And it's when I do it, it's on a holiday when the stores are probably going to be closed. But um, start with some nice backstrap and light salt and pepper, sear it, you know, cook it just under what you would serve it at, right? So it's still not reached that, that 120s range. But maybe just brought it up to obviously let it uh, reach room temperature, but you know, kiss it on each side and get a nice caramelization on it. And then from there, uh, you spread the English mustard, that really spicy mustard, all over it. I wrap it and put it in the fridge. And while that's happening, uh, or while that's cooling down, I take all the mushrooms and the shallots and mix those, you know, in a grinder, fine cuts, and uh, and then cook them a little bit to, to dehydrate. Otherwise you're going to be delivering so much moisture. Everything will fall apart. Absolutely. That so, is, uh, a, I think that's a key as you're making this is really sweating that stuff out and getting right. it to it where it's not wet, but it, where it starts to just be a little pasty. Exactly. It's like that, that point you want to get it. No, that's a, a perfect description. Yeah. You want it almost like a spreadable paste at the end. And because you have more than enough moisture there, and it, I have done it wrong where I didn't go deep enough, and then it, you cut into it, and it's like a balloon that's been holding everything. Um, but then the puff pastry. Uh, now I've never made one of those myself, but I always get those from the store. And the puff pastry, obviously, get enough, and you lay out the puff pastry flat. You spread that duxel, the mushroom and uh, and shallot mix on there. Then you take the the mustard soaked backstrap. And you put it right in the center and you wrap it all up nice and tight and get some egg yolk uh, washed to kind of create the glue. Put it all together, flip it over, and then now I've just gotten to the point where I'm starting to, to do the different designs in the top of the puff pastry. And I've, I've done the, the cuts, I've done the letters. Uh, I think this coming holiday season I'll probably experiment with something else, try to make a face or something. <laughs> there you go. And then there it's you just... Go. You cook it until in the oven until it turns perfect. It starts to turn a brown on the outside, and it's just like a, a loaf of bread at that point. And when it comes out perfect, it's going to be one of the best meals that you can serve. Awesome. You got a sauce that goes with that, or is it just straight up? That's, the, that's, the, that's what you're serving up. I've only served it straight up, uh, but the sauce has got an interesting thought now. Maybe I could... Uh, get a glaze going from the original sear. Maybe that would go, go well. There with you it. go. I did a hollandaise, which if mm. you haven't made your own holidays, give yourself a practice round because when it breaks, it breaks hard. And then yeah. you're, you're left with something that's not appealing. So give yourself a chance to, to whip that up. And that's, it's essentially a ton of butter, a ton of egg yolk, a little bit of salt and a blitzer. You blitz that up in a, um, in a chopper, then you you pour that into a pan and you're just basically kind of cooking it through till it thickens up and then once it's thickened up pour it on and it's mm. it's absolutely incredible rich on rich i mean you could get a salad rich to go with rich, it like but that. why <laughs> why yeah. you know why go to the salad oh man holiday i do love a good benedict 
And I need to I need to get in there and make a hollandaise. I've never done that. Yep. <laughs> Look it up. It says it's super easy, but get your give yourself a chance to make it two or three times, and then yeah, then it's something. It's like riding a bike at that point. You got it, yeah. and it's it's in your wheelhouse then. So my my mother in law can make a, a mean roux, and you know we we have all the Louisiana flavors in our household. So I figured I need to understand how to make a roux, and uh, I did that. I talked to her one day, got everything uh, I needed straight and then went to whisking over that hot pot and did it more times than I cared to because I wanted to see what it looked like when it burnt all the way when it separated all that stuff and uh those things like a like a hollandaise or a roux you just got to get in there and do it and say this is what I'm going to do I'm gonna learn how to do this this afternoon and then it serves you for years to come absolutely you're gonna feed the dog a couple times but at that point you're gonna be able to have that new rear house yeah I love it I love it bang up job on that last dish that's a good way to go out i i would be happy if i were to go out with a venny wellington good choice sir good yeah, choice. appreciate it <laughs> but um i it might be dethroned because i was just in uh colorado and on the flight back i sat next to this fascinating guy he's an engineer uh for a um, uh some airline company uh, he makes he builds airplanes and um we got to talking about hiking 14ers and cooking and once it hit cooking the conversation never left and we just start he is not a hunter but he's got a long history of cooking and so he's lived in france spain different parts of america south america he's lived all over so he's acquired a lot of information he said you know in his personal opinion there's no better presentation of a steak than uh florence italy and he called it uh bistecca alla florentina and I just learned about this two days ago, and I, I've been reading more about it. And basically, it's a tomahawk cut, uh, and it's from a cow in that region. So he really liked it for all the the uh, fat and the marbleization and the cow meat. But basically, what one of the things that I'm trying to get into this year is removing that back strap with rib on and having different – I'd like to do a crown cut and, mm-hmm. and do different presentations of a, a you know, julienne, stuff like that. And um, he – he said, you take the tomahawk cut, you sear it on each side, and then they invert it. And so you put the bone down in the coals, and they chop off the top of the bone. And so I asked him what they did with the marrow, and the fact that he didn't know that really concerned me. But uh, I think if you could create a catch for all that marrow, it would be even better. But he said they let it cook for hours more, just the heat traveling up through the bone and heating the meat from the bone. Oh my and, goodness! Uh, right, <laughs> it's like you're blowing my mind here. I I don't know if a venison, maybe an elk, is large enough to have a cavity where you could actually have heat travel up through. I don't know if venison would be big enough, but I could imagine that would be easily done with a femur, or or you know some some ham cut with bone in. Yeah. Uh, so that's going to be my uh, my summer project to try to figure out how to replicate that with some venison. Oh, man. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> What's that name again? Florentina Galateca? Uh, b- uh, Bisteca a la Florentina. Bisteca a la Florentina. Now, that was my my second hand writing it down, so uh, I'm sure there's a grammatical error with Italian in there somewhere. <laughs> I barely can do English, let alone add a second <laughs> language in. Well, Chris, this has been an awesome time. I'm looking at my time ticker right now, and we've got just a few minutes. Um, I want to give you just the moment 
where can, where again can we find season report? Where can we find you and engage with you as you go along um, with both season report and then now where can we find this uh, project that you're going to be working on <laughs> on social media? Yeah, uh, seasonreport.com uh, is where you can currently access the the database, and it is a um, I have a two week free trial because I don't I want everybody to get in there and understand what they're getting into. I don't like those free trials where they they pressure you into subscribing, but it's a uh, two week free trial, and then I encourage everybody to go and just give it a try and understand how much information I can bring to your eyeballs with very little time. You might have to do a little setup at the beginning, but then it's set and it updates every year. So you, that whole pursuit of having to look everything up, you kind of, kind of, you can consider it done uh, because it's all personalized there for you. And then if you want to travel to another state and pursue a new opportunity, uh, you can go to the Discover page where you can put in, "I have two weeks off and I want to bow hunt for this animal," and it'll tell you across the nation where you can do that and how with um, with states and with, or with uh, season dates, state regulation links and everything. So it just simplifies your, your whole pursuit of regulatory information. And then on social media, at My Season Report on Facebook and Instagram is where I'm doing a lot of the, the personal cooking. And uh, I just encourage everybody to give it a try. And then when you do get some of that food that you got from your own hands, Invite some friends and family over and have a conversation about where it came from and just encourage others to get out there and, and pursue their their own uh, their own dinner table ingredients. Excellent wrap up there, sir. I can't can't agree more. That's wonderful. Chris, hold on for just a second. I'm gonna let the listeners on out. Folks, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Chris and I, we went on several different rabbit trails, um, talking cooking, talking, you know, how we label things in our freezer. We've even gone to the point of we're talking growing seasons and um, how we can match those or we can see all those growing seasons, hunting seasons, foraging seasons all on his platform. And folks, all that to be said that at the end of the day, we're just a bunch of people who are trying to shorten our own food chain that having his theoretical seat at the table where we're coming together we're not trying to to uh what do i want to say compete with one another but at the same time we're all going for one common goal and that's to be able to conserve the amazing resources we have on this planet whether that's going to be in my light i want to be able to sustain hunting and fishing because it sustains me whether it's people chasing uh, new species, bigger specimens, or whether it's people that just want to take pictures. However that's going to go, we all know that we're going for the same goal. But yeah, if you're in it for the food, I can't find a better way uh, to pursue amazing flavors than through uh, our wild uh, our wild places and our wild things that we chase. And however you're chasing, make sure that that knife that you're going to use is always sharp.